Section 8 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901-1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Manalakis. Section 8. Theodore Roosevelt. December 7th, 1903. Part 2. For several years past, the rapid development of Alaska and the establishment of growing American interests in regions heretofore unsurveyed and imperfectly known brought into prominence the urgent necessity of a practical demarcation of the boundaries between the jurisdictions of the United States and Great Britain. Although the Treaty of 1825 between Great Britain and Russia the provisions of which were copied in the Treaty of 1867, whereby Russia conveyed Alaska to the United States, was positive as to the control, first by Russia and later by the United States, of a strip of territory along the continental mainland from the western shore of Portland Canal to Mount St. Elias, following and surrounding the indentations of the coast, and including the islands to the westward. Its description of the landward margin of the strip was indefinite, resting on the supposed existence of a continuous ridge or range of mountains skirting the coast, as figured in the charts of the early navigators. It had at no time been possible for either party in interest to lay down, under the authority of the treaty, a line so obviously exact according to its provisions as to command the assent of the other. For nearly three-fourths of a century, the absence of tangible local interests demanding the exercise of positive jurisdiction on either side of the border left the question dormant. In 1878, questions of revenue administration on the Stikine River led to the establishment of a provisional demarcation, crossing the channel between two high peaks on either side about 24 miles above the river mouth. In 1899, Similar questions growing out of the extraordinary development of mining interests in the region about the head of Lynn Canal brought about a temporary modus vivendi by which a convenient separation was made at the watershed divides of the White and Chilkoot Passes and to the north of Kluquan on the Kalhini River. These partial and tentative adjustments could not, in the very nature of things, be satisfactory or lasting. A permanent disposition of the matter became imperative. After unavailing attempts to reach an understanding through a joint high commission, followed by prolonged negotiations, conducted in an amicable spirit, a convention between the United States and Great Britain was signed, January 24, 1903, providing for an examination of the subject by a mixed tribunal of six members, three on a side, with a view to its final disposition. Ratifications were exchanged on March 3rd last, whereupon the two governments appointed their respective members. Those on behalf of the United States were Elihu Root, Secretary of War, Henry Cabot Lodge, a Senator of the United States, and George Turner, an ex-Senator of the United States. While Great Britain named the Right Honorable Lord Alverstone, Lord Chief Justice of England, Sir Louis Amable Jett, KCMG, Retired Judge of the Supreme Court of Quebec, and A.B. Aylesworth, KC of Toronto. This tribunal met in London on September 3rd under the presidency of Lord Alverstone. The proceedings were expeditious and marked by a friendly and conscientious spirit. 
The respective cases, counter-cases, and arguments presented the issues clearly and fully. On the 20th of October, a majority of the tribunal reached and signed an agreement on all the questions submitted by the terms of the convention. By this award, the right of the United States to the control of a continuous strip or border of the mainland shore, skirting all the tidewater inlets and sinuosities of the coast, is confirmed. The entrance to Portland Canal, concerning which legitimate doubt appeared, is defined as passing by Tongass Inlet and to the northwestward of Wales and Pierce Islands. A line is drawn from the head of Portland Canal to the 56th degree of north latitude, and the interior border line of the strip is fixed by lines connecting certain mountain summits lying between Portland Canal and Mount St. Elias, and running along the crest of the divide, separating the coast slope from the inland watershed at the only part of the frontier where the drainage ridge approaches the coast within the distance of 10 marine leagues, stipulated by the treaty as the extreme width of the strip around the heads of Lynn Canal and its branches. While the line so traced follows the provisional demarcation of 1878 at the crossing of the Stikine River, and that of 1899 at the summits of the White and Chilkoot Passes, it runs much farther inland from the Klihini than the temporary line of the later Modus Vivendi, and leaves the entire mining district of the Porcupine River and Glacier Creek within the jurisdiction of the United States. The result is satisfactory in every way. It is of great material advantage to our people in the far northwest. It has removed from the field of discussion and possible danger a question liable to become more acutely accentuated with each passing year. Finally, it has furnished a signal proof of the fairness and goodwill with which two friendly nations can approach and determine issues involving national sovereignty and by their nature incapable of submission to a third power for adjudication. The award is self-executing on the vital points. To make it effective as regards the others, it only remains for the two governments to appoint, each on its own behalf, one or more scientific experts who shall, with all convenient speed, proceed together to lay down the boundary line in accordance with the decision of the majority of the tribunal. I recommend that the Congress make adequate provision for the appointment, compensation, and expenses of the members to serve on this joint boundary commission on the part of the United States. It will be remembered that during the second session of the last Congress, Great Britain, Germany, and Italy formed an alliance for the purpose of blockading the ports of Venezuela and using such other means of pressure as would secure a settlement of claims due, as they alleged, to certain of their subjects. Their employment of force for the collection of these claims was terminated by an agreement brought about through the offices of the diplomatic representatives of the United States at Caracas and the government at Washington, thereby ending a situation which was bound to cause increasing friction and which jeopardized the peace of the continent. Under this agreement, Venezuela agreed to set apart a certain percentage of the customs receipts of two of her ports to be applied to the payment of whatever obligations might be ascertained by mixed commissions appointed for that purpose to be due from her, not only to the three powers already mentioned, whose proceedings against her had resulted in a state of war, but also to the United States, France, Spain, Belgium, the Netherlands, Sweden, and Norway, and Mexico, who had not employed force for the collection of the claims alleged to be due to certain of their citizens. A demand was then made by the so-called blockading powers that the sums ascertained to be due to their citizens by such mixed commissions 
should be accorded payment in full before anything was paid upon the claims of any of the so-called peace powers. Venezuela, on the other hand, insisted that all her creditors should be paid upon a basis of exact equality. During the efforts to adjust this dispute, it was suggested by the powers in interest that it should be referred to me for decision, but I was clearly of the opinion that a far wiser course would be to submit the question to the permanent court of arbitration at The Hague. It seemed to me to offer an admirable opportunity to advance the practice of the peaceful settlement of disputes between nations, and to secure for the Hague Tribunal a memorable increase of its practical importance. The nations interested in the controversy were so numerous, and in many instances so powerful, as to make it evident that beneficent results would follow from their appearance at the same time before the bar of that august Tribunal of Peace. Our hopes in that regard have been realized. Russia and Austria are represented in the persons of the learned and distinguished jurists who compose the tribunal, while Great Britain, Germany, France, Spain, Italy, Belgium, the Netherlands, Sweden, and Norway, Mexico, the United States, and Venezuela are represented by their respective agents and counsel. Such an imposing concourse of nations presenting their arguments to and invoking the decision of that high court of international justice and international peace, can hardly fail to secure a like submission of many future controversies. The nations now appearing there will find it far easier to appear there a second time, while no nation can imagine its just pride will be lessened by following the example now presented. This triumph of the principle of international arbitration is a subject of warm congratulation and offers a happy augury for the peace of the world. There seems good ground for the belief that there has been a real growth among the civilized nations of a sentiment which will permit a gradual substitution of other methods than the method of war in the settlement of disputes. It is not pretended that as yet we are near a position in which it will be possible wholly to prevent war or that a just regard for national interest and honor will in all cases permit the settlement of international disputes by arbitration, but by a mixture of prudence and firmness with wisdom. We think it is possible to do away with much of the provocation and excuse for war, and at least in many cases to substitute some other and more rational method for the settlement of disputes. The Hague Court offers so good an example of what can be done in the direction of such settlement that it should be encouraged in every way. Further steps should be taken. In President McKinley's annual message of December 5, 1898, he made the following recommendation. The experiences of the last year bring forcibly home to us a sense of the burdens and the waste of war. We desire, in common with most civilized nations, to reduce to the lowest possible point the damage sustained in time of war by peaceable trade and commerce. It is true we may suffer in such cases less than other communities, but all nations are damaged more or less by the state of uneasiness and apprehension into which an outbreak of hostilities throws the entire commercial world. It should be our object, therefore, to minimize, so far as practicable, this inevitable loss and disturbance. This purpose can probably best be accomplished by an international agreement to regard all private property at sea as exempt from capture or destruction by the forces of belligerent powers. The United States government has for many years advocated this humane and beneficent principle, and is now in a position to recommend it to other powers without the imputation of selfish motives. 
I therefore suggest for your consideration that the executive be authorized to correspond with the governments of the principal maritime powers with a view of incorporating into the permanent law of civilized nations the principle of the exemption of all private property at sea, not contraband of war, from capture or destruction by belligerent powers. I cordially renew this recommendation. The Supreme Court, speaking on December 11, 1899, through Peckham J., said, It is, we think, historically accurate to say that this government has always been, in its views, among the most advanced of the governments of the world in favor of mitigating, as to all non-combatants, the hardships and horrors of war. To accomplish that object, it has always advocated those rules which would, in most cases, do away with the right to capture the private property of an enemy on the high seas. I advocate this as a matter of humanity and morals. It is anachronistic, when private property is respected on land, that it should not be respected at sea. Moreover, it should be borne in mind that shipping represents, internationally speaking, a much more generalized species of private property than is the case with ordinary property on land. That is, property found at sea is much less apt than is the case with property found on land, really to belong to any one nation. Under the modern system of corporate ownership, the flag of a vessel often differs from the flag which would mark the nationality of the real ownership and money control of the vessel and the cargo may belong to individuals of yet a different nationality. Much American capital is now invested in foreign ships, and among foreign nations it often happens that the capital of one is largely invested in the shipping of another. Furthermore, as a practical matter, it may be mentioned that while commerce destroying may cause serious loss and great annoyance, it can never be more than a subsidiary factor in bringing to terms a resolute foe. This is now well recognized by all of our naval experts. The fighting ship, not the commerce destroyer, is the vessel whose feats add renown to a nation's history and establish her place among the great powers of the world. Last year, the Interparliamentary Union for International Arbitration met at Vienna, 600 members of the different legislatures of civilized countries attending. It was provided that the next meeting should be in 1904 at St. Louis, subject to our Congress extending an invitation. Like the Hague Tribunal, this interparliamentary union is one of the forces tending towards peace among the nations of the earth, and it is entitled to our support. I trust the invitation can be extended. Early in July, having received intelligence, which happily turned out to be erroneous, of the assassination of our vice Consul at Beirut, I dispatched a small squadron to that port for such service as might be found necessary on arrival. Although the attempt on the life of our vice council had not been successful, yet the outrage was symptomatic of a state of excitement and disorder which demanded immediate attention. The arrival of vessels had the happiest result. A feeling of security at once took the place of the former alarm and disquiet. Our officers were cordially welcomed by the councillor body and the leading merchants, an ordinary business resumed its activity. The government of the Sultan gave a considerate hearing to the representations of our minister. The official who was regarded as responsible for the disturbed condition of affairs was removed. Our relations with the Turkish government remained friendly. Our claims rounded on inequitable treatment of some of our schools and missions appeared to be in process of amicable adjustment. The signing of a new commercial treaty with China, which took place at Shanghai on the 8th of October, is a cause for satisfaction. 
This act, the result of long discussion and negotiation, places our commercial relations with the great Oriental Empire on a more satisfactory footing than they have ever heretofore enjoyed. It provides not only for the ordinary rights and privileges of diplomatic and consular officers, but also for an important extension of our commerce by increased facility of access to Chinese ports, and for the relief of trade by the removal of some of the obstacles which have embarrassed it in the past. The Chinese government engages on fair and equitable conditions, which will probably be accepted by the principal commercial nations, to abandon the levy of lichen and other transit dues throughout the empire, and to introduce other desirable administrative reforms. Larger facilities are to be given to our citizens who desire to carry on mining enterprises in China. We have secured for our missionaries a valuable privilege, the recognition of their right to rent and lease in perpetuity such property as their religious societies may need in all parts of the empire. And what was an indispensable condition for the advance and development of our commerce in Manchuria, China, by treaty with us, has opened to foreign commerce the cities of Mukden, the capital of the province of Manchuria, and Antung, an important port on the Yalu River on the road to Korea. The full measure of development which our commerce may rightfully expect can hardly be looked for until the settlement of the present abnormal state of things in the empire, but the foundation for such development has at last been laid. I call your attention to the reduced cost in maintaining the counselor service for the fiscal year ending June 30th, 1903, as shown in the annual report of the auditor for the state and other departments, as compared with the year previous. For the year under consideration, the excess of expenditures over receipts on account of the counselor service amounted to $26,125.12, as against $96,972.50 for the year ending June 30, 1902, and $147,040.16 for the year ending June 30, 1901. This is the best showing in this respect for the Counselor Service for the past 14 years, and the reduction in the cost of the service to the government has been made in spite of the fact that the expenditures for the year in question were more than $20,000 greater than for the previous year. The Rural Free Delivery Service has been steadily extended. The attention of the Congress is asked to the question of the compensation of the letter carriers and clerks engaged in the postal service, especially on the new rural free delivery routes. More routes have been installed since the 1st of July last than in any like period in the department's history. While a due regard to economy must be kept in mind in the establishment of new routes, yet the extension of the rural free delivery system must be continued for reasons of sound public policy. No governmental movement of recent years has resulted in greater immediate benefit to the people of the country districts. Rural free delivery, taken in connection with the telephone, the bicycle, and the trolley, accomplishes much toward lessening the isolation of farm life and making it brighter and more attractive. In the immediate past, the lack of just such facilities as these has driven many of the more active and restless young men and women from the farms to the cities for they rebelled at loneliness and lack of mental companionship. It is unhealthy and undesirable for the cities to grow at the expense of the country, and rural free delivery is not only a good thing in itself, but is good because it is one of the causes which check this unwholesome tendency towards the urban concentration of our population at the expense of the country districts. 
It is for the same reason that we sympathize with and approve of the policy of building good roads. The movement for good roads is one fraught with the greatest benefit to the country districts. I trust that the Congress will continue to favor in all proper ways the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. The Exposition commemorates the Louisiana Purchase, which was the first great step in the expansion which made us a continental nation. The expedition of Lewis and Clark across the continent followed thereon and marked the beginning of the process of exploration and colonization which thrust our national boundaries to the Pacific. The acquisition of the Oregon country, including the present states of Oregon and Washington, was a fact of immense importance for our history, first giving us our place on the Pacific seaboard and making ready the way for our ascendancy in the commerce of the greatest of the oceans. The centennial of our establishment upon the western coast by the expedition of Lewis and Clark is to be celebrated at Portland, Oregon by an exposition in the summer of 1905, and this event should receive recognition and support from the national government. I call your special attention to the territory of Alaska. The country is developing rapidly, and it has an assured future. The mineral wealth is great and has as yet hardly been tapped. The fisheries, if wisely handled and kept under national control, will be a business as permanent as any other, and of the utmost importance to the people. The forests, if properly guarded, will form another great source of wealth. Portions of Alaska are fitted for farming and stock raising, although the methods must be adapted to the peculiar conditions of the country. Alaska is situated in the far north, but so are Norway and Sweden and Finland, and Alaska can prosper and play its part in the new world just as those nations have prospered and played their parts in the old world. Proper land laws should be enacted, and the survey of the public lands immediately begun. Coal land laws should be provided whereby the coal land entryman may make his location and secure patent under methods kindred to those now prescribed for homestead and mineral entrymen. Salmon hatcheries, exclusively under government control, should be established. The cable should be extended from Sitka westward. Wagon roads and trails should be built, and the building of railroads promoted in all legitimate ways. Lighthouses should be built along the coast. Attention should be paid to the needs of the Alaska Indians. Provision should be made for an officer with deputies to study their needs, relieve their immediate wants, and help them adapt themselves to the new conditions. The commission appointed to investigate, during the season of 1903, the condition and needs of the Alaskan salmon fisheries has finished its work in the field and is preparing a detailed report thereon. A preliminary report reciting the measures immediately required for the protection and preservation of the salmon industry has already been submitted to the Secretary of Commerce and Labor for his attention and for the needed action. End of Section 8